Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. The two things that go together there are tagging and taxonomy. And taxonomy just means we're going to ask you as the planner to to create and to communicate how your data is being stored. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Um, In this episode, I'll be talking to uh, Jeff Baxter from TechSmart. Uh, This is a a sort of three-part series on estate planning and a two-part, I guess, mini-series on digital assets. So we'll have Jeff on this episode and Lucky on next episode to talk about this. Uh, Credits for this episode, this will be good for a life insurance credit in all jurisdictions. Alberta, we're going to do a half a life credit and a half an accident and sickness credit. This will be good for a financial planning credit with FP Canada, a professional development credit with IROC, an IAS credit, and an MFDA estate planning credit. Uh, All right, the interview goes quite long. We run a little more than an hour. Uh, So I'm going to just go to the object here and then roll into the interview. Next interview, uh, following Lucky's comments, I'll have some more comments of my own about uh, estate planning for digital assets. The object for today is a coloring page, a coloring page. So uh, the grandkids are living with us right now, as I think a lot of listeners will be aware pretty common. They get up in the morning, they'll come in and see me. And the first thing we'll do is print off a coloring page for each of them. They'll color that while they do breakfast. So a coloring page. All right, on that note, let's roll into the interview. I'm here today with Jeff Baxter. Jeff is with uh, TechSmart. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Jeff at an estate planning council event here in Edmonton. And uh, Jeff, I know you just mentioned you're sort of a, a failed retiree. Can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I, I guess I would start off by uh, by saying that I've got a, a fully stamped fully stamped maritime passport. I was born PEI and I grew up in New Brunswick. I worked in Nova Scotia for a number of years, even uh, one summer in Cape Breton Island. So I think that that covers sort of all of that that geography pretty good. Uh, I worked in accounting for uh, some early years. The I don't know if anybody remembers the RIA program. It was sort of a precursor to what became the uh, CMA program. It has now been rolled into, I think, a, a central program. But uh, I did that, and that kind of put me in 
um, in the front line of some new technology adoption as the market was sort of shifting away from a centralized architecture and it was moving away from things like mainframe more toward client server architectures, that sort of thing. I taught some uh, courses at college. Um, those were technology-based courses, I guess, uh, only because they felt I had an affinity for it. And uh, and then in Alberta in the late 90s, uh, I arrived here just in time for Y2K. So, um, so I spent the next 20 years working for three value-added resellers. Those are the organizations that represent companies like HP and Microsoft and bring their products to market through, uh, through a channel um, to folks like government, oil and gas, education, that sort of thing. And a number of those years were spent consulting with clients directly, um, with managing a professional services team, a stable of uh, technology professionals, if you like. And then I moved into sales um, as a technology specialist, and I was looking at uh, tools and techniques in areas like networking and uh, video conferencing, actually, when it first started uh, to be a big thing. And then uh, for the last five years, I managed sales teams uh, for those same organizations, because at that point, I had seen the pendulum sort of swinging back toward uh, centralization once again, with the advent of cloud technologies becoming more prominent in the last few years. It's interesting. I find, you know, you run into accountants and who who don't really stay the path as accountants. And, you know, this, I guess, an accountant, you know, come technologist, come uh, manager, team lead, that kind of thing. And entrepreneur, I think, right? So this is, um, I, I find not unusual to, to hear this from accountants who are willing to, I think, keep learning as uh, as lifelong learners. You know, I think it's a great background. Um, I always looked at it from two sides. I always thought, look, there's control, you know, in any business, there's control and there's creation. And uh, on the accounting side, it gave me a great chance to learn about control. How should you be uh, running your operation, you know, financially, etc. Uh, and then as I, you know, as I, and I guess, got further along in my career, the the creation piece became a little bit more interesting and fascinating for me. And so I felt, uh, you know, in the interest of good balance, I should I should pick up on some of that as well. And on the personal side, I live in Sherwood Park, married with two boys who are, I hope, just just on the cusp of being launched. So pretty soon it's about to get quiet here other than the, the two small dogs that I kicked out of the office a little earlier. Perfect. I hope that that launch goes well for you, Jeff. I have one who's back now. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always work out. Now, I think we measure, um, our, we measure our success a little bit in, in terms of, you know, how quickly and successfully and sustained is the launch for these kids. Yeah, so, yeah. So now I, I brought you on specifically today to talk about your entrepreneurial, ven entrepreneurial venture, easy for me to say, which is uh, TechSmart. Can you talk a little bit about what TechSmart is? Maybe give us the origin story. Sure. TechSmart started in October of 2021. So we're still pretty new. Um, most of our time last year in that first year was spent on product development for something that we've called uh, the Tech Executor Suite of Services. Uh, we also did some beta testing uh, in that first year, and the service is now generally available to clients, I would say. As the name suggests, uh, the suite of services has been developed for the estate planning and administration industry. And the focus is on helping clients to organize, secure, and manage their digital assets. I think there's there's a couple of things that makes that makes us unique. I think the first is 
that our services delivered one-on-one because each client is unique uh, in respect to their goals, their digital life, their technology acumen. Um, we think the personal approach is appropriate given the personal nature of estate planning and the level of trust that's involved, if you like. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't pick you know, the first financial planner in the book and share your personal information without some trust first being established. And we accomplish this through a combination of referrals from trusted uh, sources, I guess, and also our intake process. And then secondly, I'd say that our perspective is through the technology lens. And that's a bit of a unique factor as well. It kind of differentiates us from other professionals in the industry. And it's really the application of technology best practices to ensure the best possible outcomes uh, for both the testator and their personal representatives. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about about our business focus. About 90% of the business is on planning and about 10% of the business is uh, more forensics work, I would call it, like helping clients to locate or access uh, missing or locked assets. Um, The ratio is intentional, by the way, and it stems from my own personal experience as an executor where really what I came to learn is there's no level of diligence on behalf of the personal representative that can compensate for a lack of planning uh, for by the testator. So that's that's sort of a little bit about TechSmart. And, and you know, in terms of my origin story, I've, I've uh, mentioned that I was an executor. And in fact, the origin story I have come to learn uh, from within the, the estate planning and administration industry is, is rather a common one. I happened to become an executor for a close family member. And I, through that experience, I came to understand that uh, traditional estate planning doesn't account for the fact that most of us now live digital lives and that must be included in the estate planning process. Uh, even if it's just to ensure that your traditional assets can be identified and uh, secured, because as your listeners likely know, uh, there's not much of a paper trail left these days for personal representatives to follow. Uh, in my particular case, the estate was complicated by a couple of things. Firstly, the deceased was an active executor at the time of their death, um, which means, you know, at least in, in the jurisdiction of Alberta, it means that you inherit that. So you become uh, an executor twice removed, if that's an actual uh, term. Uh, and if you think a state administration is, you know, tough uh, on its own, try doing it removed uh, again. Secondly, the primary estate um, was technology intensive. So there was 3,500 square feet of digital recording studio, you know, with original music that the family wanted to preserve. There was a, f- you know, fully commercial populated digital uh, or server racks. And there was a decommissioned crypto mining operation. Uh, if, if, if you can think technical, the estate was about as technical as you could get. And this was my introduction to, <clears throat> to a state administration without any planning for digital assets. So I did need to rely on uh, others with some technology skills to assist me. Uh, I recall, you know, uh, calling in some favors from friends who were systems administrators for large uh, government organizations in the city to assist with, uh, you know, uh, the right tools and the right, I guess, the right techniques for gaining access to some of that information that most people typically wouldn't have access to. Um, 
but I knew that there had to be sort of a better way of doing it. And uh, the tech executive service is kind of how we're sharing that better way uh, with others so that their administration outcomes are more certain and they're less stressful than mine was. So you t- you said sort of 90% uh, planning, 10% forensic. Can we just focus on the, the planning side of this for, I think that's what you want to do anyways, right? In your business anyways, sure. focus on the planning side. I assume you're looking to avoid those forensic uh, situations. So yes. this would be like a you have a, a a client and the client has digital assets. I don't know who wouldn't have digital assets today, but the client has digital assets and they would connect with you. And this is like a, a human interaction, like you would meet with that person, you would take a listing of digital assets, you would produce a plan. Is that kind of how it works? Uh, it is. There's uh, the tech executive service is sort of a three-step process. We've tried to keep it simple. The first step is basically a, an intake step. So it's a matter of meeting with the potential client, gaining an understanding of what their goals and what their objectives are. Uh, it's a matter of explaining what the outcomes are from the from the service once it's been provided, and looking for some alignment there. So if there's a if there's a joint understanding of value, and that it's you know that value is clear and substantive, then we'll decide to go ahead and proceed with the service. But it's a, it is a bit of a two way. Uh, it's them understanding what we can do. It's us understanding what it is do they need. So that's the first step. Uh, the second step is what we call a uh, a digital footprint discovery, and think of it like an assessment service or or an in depth questionnaire, which looks to discover what the, um, what the depth of that digital footprint is, how how sophisticated is it, and um, what are the what are the elements that we need to know about? So that that's the second. It, it provides us with an opportunity to to gauge how substantive, how sophisticated, and ultimately we score it. We don't we don't judge, but we do score. So um, so the third step is to review the results, and so we produce a report that is received by the client, and that report highlights a number of important facts for the client. It, it it confirms the strengths in terms of what they're already doing. So if they're doing some things well, it, it's a bit of a pat in the back and say, well, keep doing these. These are these are either consistent with best practices as we know them or consistent with a strong estate plan overall or generally speaking. Um, second, we highlight any risks that we've observed. Next, we would identify best practices to effectively manage those risks. We would um, finally include uh, an action plan, which helps the client to prioritize what am I going to do? What best practices am I going to adopt in order to strengthen my position, to give me uh, a better plan, if you like, uh, or a plan, which is good and strong. And then Within the report, we also, as part of that scoring, we kind of show the client where are they today, and and if they were to proceed with their action plan um, based on, let's say, of the of the ten things that that maybe they could improve on, um, let's say they prioritize three of those, we then show them where they would be if they if they uh, accomplish those three things. So the scoring. You know, here's here's the scoring where you are now, and here's the scoring where you will be if you accomplish everything in your action plan. So that's reviewed in detail with the client as the third and final step. 
would you have an ideal client? You know, it's, uh, it's really anybody who is of a planning mind is the way I would qualify that. Perhaps the greatest challenge in this industry is to convince people to get a plan into place. Um, those who already have basic estate documents, you know, those with financial plans already, those with insurance policies, those with funeral arrangements, they show a proclivity for planning. So our clients don't need to fit an age or a wealth demographic or a technology or a role profile. While the majorities will be testators, um, we also have a module within Tech Executor uh, that is aimed at the personal representatives. Uh, we also have a module in development for business owners who want to disentangle their digital assets as part of business or succession planning. It's a good one because yeah, I, I, yeah, you see, you get so much that sort of becomes you're the business owner that some personal, some like it, it disentangles a good way to put it. We, we were delivering delivering the service to clients, and it didn't take too long to find that the discussions were confusing in terms of who owns these digital assets. So we we were brought to the point of requiring this module or felt that we should develop the module just based on our experience with clients who were business owners, uh, who were, you know, had their own practices, for example, that sort of thing. And we're already active in understanding, you know, what's my succession plan? How do I retire out of this, um, you know, this law firm? And, and it became pretty obvious through some of the personal estate planning processes that we were going through that there were going to be assets there that didn't belong in the estate plan. In fact, they belonged you know, to the business and they would need to be disentangled uh, ahead of time in order for there to be fewer consequences to both the estate and the business. And then lastly, I would say that the level of technology acumen doesn't really matter for our clients because we, we explain things in simple terms. So client suitability is really determined during that intake session, um, which is where we discuss what they want. And uh, I would say that our client base is pretty broad, so long as they generally fit into that, you know, they are of a planning mind, because we're, we're a small organization, we don't have the resources to convince people that they should be planning. That's, that's beyond us. There are, uh, there are folks out there, there are advocates, and there are evangelists who do a good job of trying to convince people, look, you should have a plan in place, an estate plan in place, which includes things like financial plans, et cetera. Uh, that's not us. What what we can do is is we can be there so that when they become convinced that this is a good idea and they realize that digital estates are um, are fairly common and and are uncommonly planned for, that maybe we can help. So. We had um, Aaron Beery on the podcast recently, and I think that's a good example of somebody who is an advocate for estate planning. So I'm assuming then that most of your business is referral business from financial planners, lawyers, that kind of thing. It is. Yes. Yeah, we we are. You know, um, I know you're aware of a lady called Sharon Hartung, who has has been one of those good advocates and evangelists for uh, digital assets and digital asset planning. And Sharon was very, she's a, among other things, she's an author and has published a, f- uh, a few books, which I would call seminal reading for anyone who wants to understand what how digital assets can complicate an estate if they're not um, planned well for. And she would say that look, IT is the new seat at the estate planning table. And I guess that, uh, that that's sort of the seat that we're 
we're pulling up a chair and we're sitting down as part of that team so that the uh, the concept of digital assets can be properly addressed as any uh, anyone's estate planning. And, and of course, uh, Sharon um, recently passed. I think this is not sad news. I don't know that uh, that's well known at this time, but I think it's public enough. So, Jeff, but said certainly tough because you you lose your um, your biggest voice in the business right yes uh sharon um you know one thing i'll say about sharon is she was tireless in her pursuit of of trying to communicate the people that look digital estates are a real thing um she sort of coined the phrase uh, digital tsunami which was uh you know used to to try and uh have people understand that but there's a there's an intergenerational wealth transfer of an unprecedented you know amount, and that 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 tsunami is going to hit. And what are you doing to get ready for it? And whenever she would make an appearance um, internationally, I would always kind of sit back and my chest would go out a little bit, and I would say, I'm very proud to have to have Sharon represent Canada in this role because she does just such a fine job at it. Uh, and certainly, her books are well worth reading for. Uh, any of your listeners that have an interest in this area. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes as well for that. Um, now, getting into some of the more technical here, and this is, I think, a good, good uh, way to introduce this. So uh, there would be stuff that I'm sure everybody, as they're listening to this first portion of our discussion, has something in mind in terms of you know digital assets. What's the kind of table stakes stuff? What's the things that everybody would be aware of? You know, I'm going to start out by saying that I think the term digital assets is is poorly understood by the public in general, and there's reasons for that. Uh, I would say the term is not unique to the industry, and amongst our various professional disciplines, we actually struggle for a consensus on what that means. Who is the uh, Society for Trust and uh, Estate Planners? They are they're a global association. I expect some of your listeners probably know of them. They have a Canadian Canadian branch as well, and, and local branches within our country. They recently co-authored, uh, co-authored a Microsoft-funded cloud legal project at Queen Mary University in London, and they published this definition. I'll read out to you. Any object that has monetary and or sentimental value and exists only in electronic form, such as digital photograph, an email account, an internet domain name, a video game item, or a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. So that so so that's a research project that has generated that definition. So they put some time and thought into what do they think it means. I've seen many definitions of it. I'm not sure my email has either monetary or sentimental value. It could have both, depending on what it leads to. And this highlights the sort of the issue with defining digital assets and that you know the value might further be defined as a gateway to other assets of value. Or, or even in some cases, liabilities that are important for the you know the person represented to be aware of. But however it's defined, we encourage the use of inventory data tagging to convey to the personal representative what the value is to the planner and how should it be treated. Really, so I, I you know a simple example of that would be a loyalty program. For example, um, the testator would use data tagging to signal to the personal representative that there's value here that has to be transferred to the estate before the, the account is closed, maybe, right? Uh, another example would be uh, a user account to access the testator's um, multi-factor authentication application. 
So uh, 2FA or MFA is a very common security practice these days. The value conveyed here is, look, keep this account active until the end of the administration to facilitate accessing other asset-related accounts and then close it. Right? Get that instruction in there so, so that kind of fits within digital assets as well. Right, last, I would say defining digital assets in terms of their value is difficult, but categorization does help. And that's probably sort of the next thing we should talk about is how do you, you know, now that now that we have talked a little bit about what are they, you know, how do you categorize them? Because that might make it easier to deal with them. And uh, and Step also alluded to this, you know, when they say they can present as having financial or sentimental value, we've sort of, our thinking has added something to that. And we've added the administration value to that list. So another example of that would be our categorization of assets as tangible or intangible. So examples of digital assets that are tangible would be uh, digital devices such as phones, laptops, tablets, PCs, externals, you know, external uh, storage devices, um, or other other infrastructure. Everybody's got a you know a home-based router, that sort of thing, as part of their part of their assets. It's important for personal red representatives to know about these devices for a couple of reasons. First of all, they they represent a physical item of value to the estate, right? And it's and it's every personal representative's job to capture those assets and protect those assets and maximize the value of those assets for the beneficiaries. So, you know, it could be like a new MacBook Pro or something like that. And secondly, they potentially represent an effective gateway to intangible assets in terms of the data that they hold. Right? So there could be information on those physical assets that would fall into the intangible category. Um, I would further go on to look at intangible assets uh, from two sources. First, this this is a pretty fascinating point of the discovery of the uh, sorry the discussion right now, and it's about self custody versus custodial. So when you're talking about intangible data, uh, the self custody is personal data in the custody uh, of the testator and therefore directly accessible by their authorized personal representative, whereas custodial is personal data in the custody of third parties and typically accessed by a user accounts that are subject to terms of service agreements that are signed by the testators. And when it comes to custodial data, there are three categories easily viewed sort of in a hierarchical fashion, right? We might, if we're getting too far into the weeds, let me know. Go, but, go, this is it. But, but let's, let's start with the most difficult uh, uh, digital assets for the personal representative to access and those are really the ones that are controlled by the custodian's terms of service. So these terms of service uh, conditions are typically meant to save the custodian from legal issues resulting from privacy-based legislation. So, so terms of service agreements that are signed by the testator are not meant to serve the testator. They're meant to protect the organization who are offering the terms of service, right? So, it's, so they're not there to help the personal representative who may be administering the estate just the opposite in, in most cases. They often contain directives like you cannot share passwords if anyone else, but you logs in uh, to your account. And if you do, we have the right to suspend or lock the account or maybe even delete the data. Those are sort of typical, uh, ter typically found in terms of service agreements. Everybody um, in the our business knows that banks have that term in there. And I, I, don't, I don't think you're talking about banking specifically here, but that's a, we know that's a term in banks. You're not supposed to share your password. 
I think that that probably banks are are no different than others in that they would say, look, we'll give you entitlement to use an online account, but you have to abide by the rules, right? Yeah. And these these accounts will often require um, a legal a legal remedy. So you've heard about cases where uh, family members have been denied access for years pending expensive expensive uh, jurisdictional court proceedings. So, um, you know, parents of a deceased child want to get access to uh, their email or to their social media accounts, and they're just stymied, you know, based on the terms of service agreements that were signed originally. So that's one tier. That's the first tier. And that's the difficult group for personal representatives to access. There is a second tier uh, in the hierarchy, and that's that I would say is conditioned around um, new legislation that's in that's intended to provide relief to personal representatives. Legislation like RFATA in the US and in Canada, um, the name that they're giving it is the Uniform uh, Access to Digital Assets by Fiduciary, the Fiduciaries Act. Um, the, the truth is that such legislation may provide some relief in certain situations, but in most jurisdictions, I know in Alberta, for example, this legislation is still pending. I think there are three provinces in Canada now that have adopted something similar. Um, this kind of legislation is subject to jurisdictional constraints. Remember, the most popular custodians like Google, Microsoft, Apple, they're not beholding to any laws outside their state and outside their country. Um, there's a great article by Stella Barbas at the Alberta Law Reform Institute website. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about this, what she what she points out is, you know, the is something that I hadn't thought about until I'd read the article, and that is the legislation only applies where there's someone to hold accountable. And with a lot of digital assets being held on blockchain, there's no one to hold accountable. You know, there is no uh, custodian. Where there's no custodian, then the law has no effect. So um, would recommend reading up on that if you're interested. And then finally, the third tier, here's the most promise for people. It's what we call digital legacy planning options. And it's a feature that's available from custodians who understand the need for accessing digital assets by personal representatives. And this feature allows the account holder to specify what data can be accessed by whom. But of course, this is all done in advance, right? This is, this is part of the planning process for estates. And it talks about under what circumstances can the data be accessed and by whom and in advance of some triggering event like a, a death or incapacity is when you need to do this and i would say that this is the pinnacle of preparedness today and we consistently recommend this option be leveraged whenever it's available one one important point here is it needs to be coordinated with your legal directives so for example if you have a um, if you have someone who is appointed either as an executor, agent, or attorney, you'd want to make sure that the individual who you're giving access to the data through one of these legacy planning options is consistent with, with your earlier appointments. So it can cause a lot of consternation, grief, uh, confusion, let's say, if you have someone pointed as your executor and someone different identified as the person who can be your personal representative accessing your email from Google, for example, right? So there should be some consistency in your planning there just to keep any uh, disagreements to a minimum, I would say, after the fact. 
there's not that many that I'm aware of that do that. I think uh, Facebook does that, Jeff. I think Google does that. I don't know yeah, who else allows we, you to uh, actually set like oh password managers. I think we've taken there. There are more and more all the time. Is is the um, is the reality, uh, Jason? And as part of the tech executor's service, when when we've identified that you're not using those legacy planning options, we first of all present the best practice um, that they should be used, and based on sort of this tiering, this hierarchy that I've just gone through. And secondly, we provide examples. So we've gone through for the most popular. I think there are three or four of the most popular. We've we've documented them and we provide them as attachments um, and examples and addendums to the report, so that you can, if you've been given the advice do this we're also showing you how to do it for the most popular applications that are out there today that do offer that service now i want to circle way back use the term earlier and i just want to um, make sure we get a a definition here and this was digital asset tagging i think you said that the the testator ought to do digital asset tagging so that the executor or other uh, appointee can actually manage this can you just uh, dig into this a little bit more for us, Jeff? Yeah, the two things that go together there are tagging and taxonomy. And taxonomy just means we're going to ask you as the planner to to create and to communicate how your data is being stored. In other words, are you using a certain naming convention for your files so that your personal representative will be able to quickly figure out, ah, that's where the tax files are kept you know, for previous years, or ah, that's where the uh, inventory can be found of digital assets, or this is, you know, uh, this is uh, where you can find something else that's important. The data tagging is more uh, an element of um, of creating a legend, so that the personal representative will understand what you're trying to communicate relative to a specific digital asset. So, for example, let's say you're using a password manager as a digital vault. So we, we deal with three kinds of digital vaults. Password manager would be what we would call a credentials vault. And uh, within that vault, there are items that, that you create. And, and the items can be many things, but I would say the most common item you'll find within a credentials vault is a username and password. And that username and password might be uh, providing access to your personal representative for that um, uh, that rewards program, let's say it's air miles or something like that. Uh, then within that, excuse me, within that item, you can annotate what you'd like to have happen. And what we suggest in some cases is that the annotation be iconic based. So the data tagging might look like a dollar sign and it might look like something else, one or two icons that will communicate based on a legend that you have to your personal representative. Okay, I've this there's value here that I need to capture uh, you know, as part of my responsibility. And then maybe, um, you know, maybe there's another icon that says this, uh, this account needs to be closed, or maybe this data needs to be destroyed. Or maybe this data, uh, you know, this, this asset needs to be uh, in, it, you know, is um, slated for inheritance, and so needs to move to someone else's custody afterwards. Um, so whatever the case, there's typically uh, an icon that, that you will create and place in a legend that can be used by the um, personal the uh, personal representative in order to effectively administer the estate based on the wishes of the testator and the planner. 
Perfect. That sounds like a little bit of work, but I get that a little bit of work up front, like all planning, right? Saves so much trouble down the road. Now you you left uh, you left us off. You were good enough to sort of go down a different road here, but you said we should talk about categories. Can we circle back then and talk about those categories? And I, yeah, uh, I, I, I think list coming. I, I think that's yeah. I think that's what I was talking about in terms of the tangible, intangible. I see. Okay, uh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, those, those are sort of how, at the highest level, that's how we categorize. And then we break it down uh, into subcategories after that. Okay. I think you probably touched on a good, you know, 20 or 25 different examples of digital assets just in your sort of casual conversation here. What would be some of the things that people would have that they wouldn't have thought about? The stuff that you you see in your your, your planning exercise that people say, oh, my goodness, yes, I never even considered it. Yeah, you know, it's not what you would think um is is the answer um you know we try not to forget that this process of estate planning and administration is really about people and about their legacy and you know one digital asset that that we find is often overlooked or what we refer to as guiding documents um i think within the planning industry people might recognize that term they may have been called something else but uh i think the current popular term probably is guiding documents these really supplement the three basic estate documents, those being the will, the power of attorney, and the personal directive. The guiding documents, uh, you know, just to give you a brief description, um, would be or would contain personal information intentionally kept separate from the basic estate documents. So perhaps because the basic estate documents might be subject to probate, for example, uh, you, you might want to keep these separate. Uh, an example might be a letter of wishes. Uh, it, that's an effective method for conveying helpful information to your executor, such as organ donation or funeral uh, arrangements or memorial wishes, something like that. Or a list of key individuals uh, who the personal representative might rely on uh, to assist with some specific elements of administration. That information changes over time for most of us. And it's very easy to update those details when they're kept electronically. And it's just as pertinent to agents and attorneys who need current information on things like financial holdings or active medical prescription details. Right? While these could be, well, you know, you could print these out, but there are a lot of benefits like the convenience of just keeping this information current to justify creating these as digital assets. And that's one that most people don't think about and don't factor in. It is one that we touch on in the service to make sure that you are aware that this is a mechanism you can use to ensure that that critical information is always updated because it's easy to do so. Just like a credentials vault makes it easy to manage, you know, a hundred passwords and usernames, which which normal people like you and I can't do without, you know, the use of digital tools. Like if you have digital assets, you need digital tools to manage them, and whether it's things like vaults or whether it's whether it's creating a digital version of what you might normally consider to be, you know, a standard estate planning document, um, we're suggesting that you can make that a digital uh, asset and and handle it, manage it effectively, um, along with the others. So that's one that most people will not think about. So this would be, you know, essentially a lot of lawyers will say, I don't want to put every last item into the will. The will is going to sort of deal with, you know, big financial assets, real estate, investments. And then 
you go when you write a separate document that defines you know which of your kids gets which you know family heirlooms or that kind of that that's the document you're or a version of the document you're talking about here jeff that that could easily be called a letter of wishes yes and, and all of that kind of information would be fitting to include into something like that and that could be held digitally because like i could say you're these are the kinds of things that tend to get changed often and you don't want to go back to your lawyer and say can i update my will right and make a change to this um, especially if it's a list of contacts you know people who you would like to have available who maybe know your estate well and could assist your your personal representative when it comes to administration because i believe the statistics show that um, most executors are chosen you know um, from a pool of family members based on trust that sort of thing this person understands me they know what my wishes would be you know if i haven't been explicit enough they will make the right choices for me those people are not necessarily the experienced ones that are capable of dealing with what's my financial what do i have to do with my financial plan now that i'm in charge of it what do i need to do in terms of maybe some medical things how do i deal with the technology assets that have been left as part of the estate that i need to use in order to get access to a whole bunch of other stuff right but by listing a series of resources that maybe do have those um you know those skills then you're giving the the personal representative a foot up to say look here's a team that's available to support you in these areas those names change on a, you know a somewhat regular basis maybe and keeping that in digital fashion would allow you to keep it current and as long as it's accessible by the uh, personal representative you're good that makes a ton of sense anything else that that's a really great example anything else that you've seen jump out where that it's something that that you know is not a surprise but that is surprising to the folks you're dealing with uh we will we will probably talk i haven't seen this a lot yet but it's something that i expect to see coming up and that is um more in the the blockchain or the crypto space and i think it's just because it's so new that it isn't being discussed yet it's being viewed still as a, a very much a spec you know a speculator's sport if you like uh, I think when it becomes more mainstream, the emphasis is going to be on getting that into the planning. And the emphasis is going to be on getting that properly protected. Uh, and, and we may get into, you know, uh, a little bit more of those details in this conversation to ensure that they are part of, you know, they are digital assets, part of the planning administration discussion. Perfect. Okay. So you've already brought up sort of the the traditional three documents here, the the heart of most estate plans. Is there anything else to talk about here in terms of how the work that you do interacts with the will slash the role of the executor? Anything there to bring up? Uh, sure. It, um, I, I will say that, you know, going back to the tech executor service, our approach is around recommending best practice. That's how to improve your situation from where you are now to maybe what your goals and objectives are. Um, and what we discussed, you know, during that intake process. And these typically involve both tools and techniques, I would say. And overall, we strive to make recommendations that are in keeping with both the legal and financial realities of the client's jurisdiction. So um, one thing I didn't mention to you when we when, when you asked, you know, uh, me to introduce myself, um, I didn't say that I had registered within the the uh, uh, STEP program for their uh, CETA designation, which is a series of, you know, I think the curriculum involves 
three courses of study and then a composite exam at the end. I, I did pursue the CEA designation, which is a certified executor advisor. And from the financial side of things or from the financial planning side of things, a, a certified digital asset advisor certification. The reason I've done these is I, I have no interest in 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 being a trust administrator, which is a lot of what CETA focuses on. I have no interest, you know, in necessarily assisting executors with administering estates. Typically by then the harm is done and without the planning, uh, the only way that we assist after that is is in that forensics uh, capacity. Um, I have a phone. I know the phone has information I need. I can't get into the phone, right? That sort of thing. Uh, because there's uh, multi-factor authentication and there's pins that I don't know that weren't written down anywhere and all of that kind of stuff. Or I've lost, you know, I can't access my cryptocurrency. Can you help me with that? That sort of thing. Because maybe the seed phrase is, uh, has been misplaced or that sort of information. So, so there's that, but I would say our, uh, got off topic here just a little bit. Um, the only reason that, that we've acquired that perspective that is not from the technology side is because we appreciate that we're, we're only, you know, we're part of a team and we need to make sure that our best practice recommendations observe those financial and legal realities. So we need to know what are they. Uh, in order to make sure that our best practice recommendations are not uh, inconsistent with the best advice that planners are receiving from other members of the team, like lawyers and accountants and financial planners, et cetera. So you want to be so that always, seat at the table. You have to sort of understand what the table looks like. Right? Is, <laughs> yeah, that, that's really well put. We're, we're, I would say that we're always conscious that we're only one part of the estate planning administration team. And what we what we do needs to really fit into that holistic estate plan. So that was the intention behind those, you know, uh, pursuing some of that education was simply to make sure that what we're telling you is is appropriate given your circumstances and given the fact that we fit, you know, as we are only one part and we need to fit into the rest of it. Um, so we also know that the, in the majority of cases, the same individual may be appointed to act as executor, agent, attorney under those three basic documents, but our our tools and our techniques don't assume that that is so. So the advice that we provide is done in such a way that if you have one person appointed as your executor, but someone different appointed as your attorney and someone different appointed as your your agent, you know, working under a personal directive, for example, that uh, each of these roles are as they were unique individuals. And the key here is to ensure that the information shared with them you know, is by specific role and in the event of a triggering scenario. So, for example, uh, if you were uh, incapacitated for some reason and you were, you know, uh, unable for medical reasons to carry, you know, carry on, the information that would be released to your agent as you're under a personal directive would not necessarily be carte blanche in everything. It wouldn't be information that your financial planner or, or your um, your you know your attorney under a under a POA would need, and it's not the information that should be released to your executor in order for them to effectively manage your estate. It's information which is specific to your medical situation. What are you know who are my doctors? What are my prescriptions? What are my allergies? What you know what are these important things to know about that are role based? So so when it comes to 
you know, the will, the executive, the POA, the attorney, the person, the director, the decision maker, those are our, those are our processes that we that we follow in order to make sure that the information has integrity and that it's not just generally available, but only only made available on you know on an as required basis to the right people. That's a good comment. It's uh, you know you get so customized with this. This does lead me to a separate question here, Jeff. I'm going to go off script a little bit here, but um, sure. so how much work is it? Like you you give somebody back their report card, their action plan, and it, you know how much work do people typically have to put in? to implement the set of recommendations that you're providing? Well, as any good lawyer would answer this question, it depends. And um, it, it depends on which best practice recommendations that ultimately make it into the action plan and how they're prioritized. So typically what we will do is we will help to structure those best practice recommendations within a client's action plan. And we'll do it. And, and, and within the report, you can see that certain, uh, the adoption of certain best practices are going to have a lot more payoff for you than the adoption of other best practices. And that's why we include sort of a graphical representation of here is your score. It's like, a, it's a chart. It will show you, you know, across a line of modules that we've measured you. How did you score? It will show. You know, that's why we provide a second chart that shows, look, if you would, if you do, in fact, adopt these best practice recommendations, here's what the chart will now look like here. Here's how you've improved. And we we do that based specifically on what the client wants to put in that action plan so that they can, in fact, see if I adopt, you know, best practice recommendation number one, what impact is that going to have versus number two or number three? So we're able to to sort of dynamically determine with the client, what is it that they, how can they prioritize those? And then the amount of effort required is a, is a thought process around, you know, do I think I can do this on my own? And if so, how fast are there any, you know, do I need to do it faster? Can I take my time to do it? If I can't do it on my own, who can help me? And, uh, and we also have a second service that we offer, which is to uh, which we would consider almost like remedial services. They're really designed to assist the client with the adoption of the best practice recommendations if they feel they're not capable of doing it on their own. But we're there to assist. We're not there to, you know, we're not there to do it for them. This isn't something that you can do for someone. This is something that you can guide someone through. And the reason we, you know, one of the reasons we can't do it, there's, there's uh, probably multiple reasons why we can't, and there's certainly multiple reasons why we shouldn't. But but one of those reasons is all of the privacy regulations and legislation that abounds. So it, whether it's HIPAA or whether it's um, you know Pepita or PIPA in Alberta, we're held to those regulations. So we might ask you, for example, in the questionnaire, how many email accounts do you have and what are the domains? So you might say, well, I have an Apple account. So, okay, we know what that is. I have a Google account. Well, we know it's a Gmail account. You know, I have a Microsoft account. So it's an Outlook or it's a Live or it's a something, right? It, it, we do not want to know what is the name of the email account, but we do need to understand what ecosystems are you invested in already? And if you're using multiple accounts, are you discriminating? Like, are you using some for work and some for per, you know, personal or, or do you have um, aliases set up, you know, that we need to know about because those are going to be challenges to any administrator coming in after the fact. So, um, so we, we make those queries and we, um, we document that information, but when it comes to 
assisting the clients to do the work for remediation. We simply give them our best advice on how to do something, but they must do it themselves because of, you know, in some cases, because of that privacy legislation, we simply won't expose ourselves to personal information, not for our own sake and not for the sake of our clients as well. So. so is the output here like a written document that gets handed to the executor in it, or is like there an email something to the executor or something that lives in a cloud somewhere? It, it is a uh, an actual real live report that is given to the client who who you know uh, has paid for the service if you like or has. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I get that right. So the client gets that, and then, but I mean, when the client is done, when the client has actually got what they need to give, so that the executor will be well equipped, right? How how does that get delivered to the executor? Ah, so. One of the so the uh, the tech executor service I may have mentioned has multiple modules in it. Um, you, you know, it's possible that a client will want all of the modules, and it's also possible that the client will want a specific module because that during the intake process will seek to determine what are your goals and what are your objectives, and and if the client happens to be a future executor and not the planner or testator then one of the modules within the tech executor service is called executive readiness. And what it does is we, we basically test the executor to see how ready they are to take on the role from a digital assets perspective. How prepared are they to administer a digital estate? Right? And that's the report that they then get. And, and they may have some takeaway items in terms of best practice recommendations that they'll want to adopt in order for them to be in the best possible position to act as the personal representative when the time comes. Um, so, so that's, that's, I'm hoping I've asked, answered your well, question. That's, that way. that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That's uh, I wouldn't have thought about that, but it's like a, like a free audit, I guess. Eh? Yes. And, um, and we are prepared to go back and re audit on occasion, uh, you know, should somebody wish it, you know, how, how have I done in adopting the best practices? How ready am I now versus how ready I was then? is a is a good question that's yeah that's a good idea that's pretty cool um now what about the role of the financial planner here does is the financial planner strictly just a referral partner for you or what what else does the financial planner do um i would say that uh that professionals that are in the financial sector they've been dealing with digital assets since um, banks and investment firms have moved their processes online What's new is the potential for uh, crypto assets like currencies and collectibles to be um, discussed as part of a financial plan. Uh, and from an inheritance perspective, you know, how are these things organized, secured, and managed um, so you know effectively with respect to passing these along to you know uh, as per the client's wishes? Um, what financial planners have told us is that they see this space as really a gap in their service coverage. Uh, and again, this was this was the focus of the CDAA, that Certified Digital Assets Advisor Education, was we were looking to complement financial planners who, who take a holistic approach to uh, their clients, but maybe they're not comfortable with the um, you know with crypto assets uh, and blockchain type technology where most of those exist. Um, so we we help cover that gap by. Uh, sharing some best practices with respect to crypto vault usage. It's one area. Whether that's hot or cold or multi-signature wallets, um, along with tools that provide sort of 
uh, additional layers of security. So, um, so there are tools out there like a panic button that will transfer all crypto assets from one wallet to another. Uh, if you if you deal with with crypto assets and you deal with wallets, you'll understand the challenges involved with making that happen. If you can automate that process, particularly when there's a high need to do the transfer, and there's there are requirements to ensure that there is sufficient currency, they'll call it gas, or they'll use other terms uh, to define that. Then this is a you know it's a solid service that um, some that, that a lot of people could take advantage of. Um, there's also wallet watch programs that we might recommend to people. So what that does is, um, in real time, it advises clients that there's a transaction taking place in their wallet. Now, if they've done that transaction, that's fine. If they have not, um, perhaps they signed a, uh, a smart contract and really didn't pay attention to what they were signing. And now things are happening that they really didn't authorize, that they really didn't want. They've, they've authorized it. They just, didn't, they just didn't know what they were authorizing. They and they certainly don't want it. Yeah. yeah. So those wallet watch programs can can sort of alert you as a as a uh, crypto assets holder that something is happening. And if it's not what you intended, then you might want to push that panic button that we talked about a little earlier. Um, or uh, I would say smart contracts that that execute sort of wallet tr- content transfers, maybe from a beneficiary or sorry, from a testator to a beneficiary. Um, automatically upon certain conditions being met. Um, so let's say the let's say uh, I would like to say the requisite paperwork, but p- paperwork doesn't in, you know doesn't exist in, in the digital space. So someone provides proof of death. Um, think crypto will, for example, um, that that data that is received in the system executes the smart contract, and now transfers are made from the holder to the beneficiary. So those those things, um, I think, are all interesting areas that financial planners um, are probably a little bit worried about these days because they don't understand what are the what are the tools and what are the techniques that can be used to help my customers ensure that um, you know their day to day is safe, but also the inheritance of those assets is um, is planned for in a way that will produce uh, you know um, a desired outcome and. And not something that is uh, unplanned for. Um, I'm going to launch to near our end here. So, can you give an example? Maybe there's something you have on your mind here where you've seen something a little bit unconventional. Somebody's had, you know, some sort of digital asset. We know that's a very broad umbrella now. But what have you seen done out there that uh, that you said, "Oh, this is this is interesting. I'm going to mark this one down." Not sure how to answer that question, Jason, exactly. Would you mind uh, rephrasing it just well, a little bit? Well, you know, I look at, uh, I hear sometimes, and I don't know what's actually possible here, Jeff. I hear sometimes where people donate, um, I'm going to say air miles, but whatever, if that still exists tomorrow, oh, yeah. um, donate right. their air miles to charity or that kind of thing. Like, is that something you see people doing or anything like that where it's something other than just, I want to make sure that the next generation is sort of optimized for value here I, I have not witnessed anything unusual in that regard so um, but then again it's probably the fact that everything we do we we look through that lens of technology and we say you know so from our our perspective it doesn't particularly matter what you do with it as long as you can access it you know within the guidelines that are available so it's you know it's legal you know we, we would never say do this if it's illegal to do it but 
we, we do provide what we would recommend as mechanisms for your, for the best outcomes that, you know, that you could have. And then it's up to you to make the decision, you know, uh, even though your wife maybe didn't sign up for, you know, or your spouse didn't sign up for, for the rewards program, you know, in everyone's thinking, they have entitlement, right? But they can't get at them because the terms of service are restricting you from doing that. Our perspective is, let's make sure that that doesn't happen. It's it's not what's going to happen with the assets once they become, you know, part of a disbursement within an estate. Let's just make sure you can get them, that you can secure them, and that you can access them in order to satisfy whatever the plan might be. Um, I don't see anything happening different with digital assets as with traditional assets that way. It's simply that they become lost or inaccessible so much easier because the information that's needed to ensure that that doesn't happen isn't effectively communicated through the planning process. I, I would guess as well, it might not even be obvious that the asset even existed, right? Like after the fact that person has died and did did the asset ever even get considered? True. And, and that's really where the, um, where the digital vaults come in. So there are, there are three of those. I think I mentioned the, um, the credentials vault earlier, which, which a, um, a password manager might be a good example of. I think many of those would qualify as, as credential vaults. There are crypto vaults and those would take the, the form of, um, of wallets of some form, uh, or they are, uh, user accounts with passwords. They don't have to be, um, crypto assets can be held outside of a wallet. And then there's, uh, there is, uh, one other, which I would call a documents vault where you would hold digital copies of things like certificates and other important pieces of, you know, what used to be paper, but this doesn't exist anymore. I mean, where the uh, personal representative would need to access that information in order to do a proper job of administration. And my final question for you here, Jeff, um, and I don't know if the answer is going to be none, but uh, what do you see as the greatest benefit of a financial plan or of the financial planning process? Yeah, you know, I, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question, and I uh, I gave it some uh, some thought. And you know, the the first thing that came to mind was every one of your listeners is more qualified to answer this question than I am. But then I thought, okay, well, if I just take a perspective of the you know the, if I take that technology perspective that we're applying to this entire process uh, in terms of what we do at TechSmart, what I would say is is you need access, the administrator, whoever's going to administer, administer the account or the administrative state, sorry, needs access to the plan and they need to know, they need to know who to talk to in order to, you know, to deal effectively with the financial plan. So the financial plan doesn't come to an end necessarily, you know, uh, with with the planner. It, it could be that, that there is a future for that financial plan and somebody knows how to do properly affect it and and that's probably not the executor, but the executor should know what the plan is and who they can rely on in order to assist with managing that plan into the future. So those are uh, those are important things to make sure that the administrator or the executor has access to. And I think that that's that was, that's answer, I, think that, I don't think, I, <laughs> and this is kind of the challenge. That's why I asked the question is because I, I think it's a fair point that my listeners are qualified to answer the question. I don't know if people have answers to the question. You know, um, and I'm trying to answer the question from the perspective of of TechSmart and what we do and how we approach the estate, you know, state planning administration process. 
as a person, you know, I, I have my own views on the value of a financial plan, but I think the discussion today, which you're hopefully what you're looking to suss out is, is as, um, you know, given your perspective and the lens that you look at everything through, where do you see the financial plan being important? And I think, you know, I, I think it's, um, one of those, you have your basic estate documents, you know, that you should have in place. And then you have a, a tier of other very important matters that need to be documented and need to be understood in terms of both being able to access and ex- execute on. And I see the financial plan is kind of fitting into that, that tier. It's perfect. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. This is super. It's a, it's a great look at an area of estate planning that I get a lot of questions about and have for, you know, seven or eight years probably. But nice to see that there's somebody who's actually tackling the pro- tackling the problem in a, a designed manner. So thanks very much, Jeff. That's uh, great. Yeah, you're very welcome, Jason. I'll I'll leave you with a comment. Um, I had an opportunity to speak with Sharon Hartung um, last a uh, last summer, I think, and we were we were well into the planning of of TechSmart at that time into the tech executive service. And I thought, you know, I'm going to call Sharon and see if she'll talk with us and. Uh, maybe share any wisdom. And the first thing she said was, you're not developing another software program, are you? <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, that's an interesting comment. What, what I see happening an awful lot is that there are, lots of, um, there are lots of innovators out there in the technology space who are developing portals that can be used by clients in order to store a lot of what would be referred to as digital assets. We've talked about many of them today. What we do is is something quite different. Is we are we are still today a you know a person to person service because uh, it's it's not good enough to simply give people a repository of where they can put things. Even though that repository may come with a, uh, a litany of services that can be added to. So, for example, uh, there are companies where you can put your information, and then should something happen, they will work with you they will advocate on your behalf to do things like get access you know to social certain social media accounts and all that kind of thing that's all fine and good but i think what we're doing is is a bit different because we're working with the individual planners hopefully not with too many administrators although we're happy to do that when we can but that is that becomes more of a best effort basis but working with one-on-one with the planners to ensure that the uniqueness of who they are and what they do and what they have is captured and protected and communicated in a way that's going to make their uh, their situation effective uh, when it comes time. So that's perfect. Um, well, I really appreciate that, Jeff. Um, you've had lots of great answers, and again, just a, a different perspective here than what I, I normally get. So, thank you, Jeff. Right. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Oh, lots there. You can hear Jeff is a real pro on the estate planning side. He has um, educated himself quite a bit here and um, understands estate planning processes very well. I thought this was very strong. The number for today is two. The number is two. Okay, uh, join me in uh, two weeks again when we're going to go back to the digital estate planning well. And we'll have Lucky on to talk about his experiences there. Thanks so much and enjoy your continued studies. Hi, if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com 
and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, and I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about.